Hello and welcome to another edition of the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites' weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. My name is Brian Vitale. Joining me today, I have Josh Torres. Take me to the promised land, Sakaguchi. We've got Adam Vitale. Hello. Chow Min Wu. How's it going? And James Glizio. I can't believe I spent 200 bucks on an Apple product to play Fantasian. And that has been a story for the week. We've had a few of us diving into Fantasian, which released the second of its two parts this week. Uh, we don't know where, where George is. He is missing. If any of you have any details of his location, uh, call in and let us know. Yeah, that definitely get, get on our Discord and be like, okay, I found George. So I'm like in Fifth Avenue. Like, is it the time to put George posters on milk jugs and stuff? Yeah. Yes. Have you seen this man? I've heard he's like, he's got a, a Psychonauts tattoo on his like back shoulder blade or something like that. There, I'll tell you. Oh yeah, the, yeah. Identified like well, well, what what Kingdom Hearts tattoo does he have? It's somewhere. Oh, he's there. got Sora. He's got Sora on one of his calves. There. Okay. Look for Sora Great. on the lower leg of a skinny yeah, British man. And that, that that is yeah. George. <laughs> if you're in Europe, any any part of Europe, if you see a Kingdom Hearts tattoo on a lower calf, then let us know. Anyways, okay, so welcome to another edition of the TetraCast. It has been uh, kind of a weird week in terms of releases, in terms of new games. Uh, the surprise of the week was a slightly quick announcement of the second part of Fantasian, which I think a lot of us were initially expecting to be later in the year, like a September, October timeframe. But nope, it was slated to come out August 13th. And then on top of that, it decided to come out like a day or two early and be available for download and play. So a few of us have had a chance to poke at that. Obviously, some of us have been playing some other games uh, leading into the week that we're e eager to talk about. And then we've got a bunch of release dates uh, for as we fill out the back half of the year with some ports, some surprise announcements, things like that. And then also, it's been a big week for details on the upcoming Tales of Arise. So that's kind of the slate for the week and what we'll be talking about. But I think we're going to be starting out with what Josh sort of incidentally introduced is Fantasian, which if you're not aware of what this was, this is the Mistwalker game on Apple Arcade, which has the talents of Sakaguchi and Umatsu on it, released the first half of the game in April or so, March, April, earlier in the year. And now we've got the second half released just in this last week. So I know a few of us had already played the first half. Also, James, who had mentioned picking up the uh, Apple TV to start right from the uh, outset of Fantasia and playing through both parts consecutively. So uh, since Josh and I have had the chance to speak to Fantasia a little bit on previous episodes of this podcast, maybe I'll uh, hand it off to James to see like what his impressions are going into the game. And I'm not sure how far he is either. So James, uh, take He's it away. He's harder than both of us, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he just been on it. Take it away, James. Okay, so I basically started playing earlier this week. I was originally hoping to get to the cutoff point for uh, when part one ends, like before the update hit, but then the update dropped a day before I was expecting it to, a day before everyone else was expecting it to even. When I was playing through the sections of the game that everyone already knew about, the first part, the thing that stood out to me was that the thing I kept thinking about anyway was I enjoyed it. The pacing at the very beginning is kind of slow. The gameplay, the uh, like battle systems kind of slow. This the latter half of part 1, it really starts coming together. The battles get more interesting, story gets more interesting, 
Um, one thing I really appreciate about the battle system as a whole, and this obviously um, ties into uh, part two, but a lot of the bosses in the latter half of part one onward really has some unique like uh, mechanics to them, and they really start to get more difficult. Vam at the end of part one, that was a pretty difficult boss fight because you really need to be on like taking down his like ads that he spawns or else you're going to have a really bad time. I thought that uh, the uh, the boss fights in part one of Fantasian were gimmicky, but in a good way. And I don't really have like a good way to describe what is a good gimmick and what is a bad gimmick. But they involve systems of the battle system where it's like, if you want to have a good time against this boss, the one that I keep thinking of is the one that's kind of like the Chocobo Eater in Final Fantasy X, where he keeps trying to push you back. And there's a specific damn. way that you need to like prevent that. Uh, using uh, basically they, they kind of tutorialize it where it's you got a new character on your team they have these sorts of abilities which is a perfect counter to this boss fight and it's not quite so simple as use that character when I win button you're done but it involves those talents those abilities and involves it into a gimmick with how the boss works and how you damage them and it's smart in a way where you don't just have like a go-to strategy where it's like, well, if I just do this strategy on this character, I win every fight I'm up against. You actually have to understand what the boss is doing, how you make them weak, how you like prevent them from damaging you. So it, you're right, though, that it does kind of take a while to ramp there. It's one of those games where you kind of have to stick with it. By, by, by hour five or by hour six, it does end up really kind of getting pretty involved and pretty... Uh, yeah. Part that's really impressed me already yeah. uh, with like it's some of his bosses. Like Very early on, um, I, I won't spell like, the context of the boss fight, but there's this boss fight uh, that you run into fairly early into part two where there's uh, there's debris uh, spinning around it. It's like, it's like a big rock formation. Oh, and, like, there's, yeah, there's I know, yeah. I know the one yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. And so, it, it, it is really cool. So, but, so but if you remember, Brian, in uh, Fantasian, when you cast a spell or you uh, throw out like a special skill, like Leo's like Fire Blade or something, there's like an actual trajectory to those spells. Whether you create mm -hmm. an arc, whether you do it, where they actually just travel to the boss. So there. Uh, so in this fight, um, as you're weakening it through phases, because it'll, it'll constantly shift through elements, and you have to think about okay, what weak uh, element is it weak to now? Uh, that debris will continue to uh, crumble around it and like uh, circle around it more quickly or in quantity. There's there's just debris falling off, and, and then, then eventually it, you won't be able to hit use a spell to hit through the debris. And the only chance you're gonna have to attack it, basically, this is like an enrage mechanic almost from like an MMO. When it charges up its um, ultimate attack, it'll raise the debris above the rest of the body. And so basically, for this boss, in that last section, if you, you basically have to just throw everything you got at it, because if that attack hits you, you're basically going to wipe. So this is the interesting thing about this boss. Like, remember what I said about like trajectory, uh, like spells traveling? That debris, like early on, you see gaps uh, in its debris, and you actually have to time when, when you're going to uh, press the cast command. Like, we have to actually time when you're actually going to attack for that turn to get through those gaps. Uh, and make sure that like uh, there's a clear path towards whatever you're casting to that boss, or else it won't hit because there'll be uh, the the physical I mean the like the mass of the debris will actually just be in the way if you time it wrong. It'll just it, it won't take any damage. But as uh, as James was getting to, like as you know, there's more little parts of debris and it spins really fast. There'll be like a, like this final phase where you think you it's invulnerable, but 
it was it, uh, an interesting like thing about it that the uh, I just barely played it last night, where there's actually very little my minor gaps in that final phase where I had Leo has a my Leo has a skill where sometimes if I cast like a support or an item on someone, he'll do like the fight command automatically. So at least he's still getting some DPS off of that turn. So he did that and is actually able to slip through that final phase of debris and still like hit the boss. Even though it didn't do a lot there, I'm like, huh, that's interesting. So there's actually just by that one little interaction, it's like, oh, there's still a little minor gap here. Of course you can wait for that phase where it raises the debris up, but from that little observation alone, it's like, oh, this is really cool because there's a way to still kind of do damage to this boss without the intended that's really uh, interesting because mechanic. like none of the fights if i recall correctly in the first half of the game really m- involved timing it's more no, like you they did hmm? there was that one uh boss in east uh, events where um they even tell you though it might not you might not remember it that you could use a uh, cheryl's uh, attack at the right time when it's opening its mouth at its apex and it'll deal extra damage okay my memory is just it's been a few months I do remember a bunch of the stuff about positioning and, and in terms of like having like the floating drones and you trying to clear those out while attacking the main enemy. But I just don't remember. I'm glad that they doubled down on the timing aspect because it ends up being like a bunch of simple ideas in terms of like the arcs of the spells and the positioning of the main enemy behind certain ads or certain, you know, sub enemies and then involving the timing aspect and the travel speed of what those spells or abilities. It ends up and becoming like mind. a. Keep in mind that one boss fight it really ties into like um, the elemental stuff too, because when it has uh, different elements active, you it'll only really take a decent amount of damage from the specific element that that uh, element is weak to. So it's I, like, I do remember it was very critical to make sure you have like your elements covered, and for most. Uh, of the party members they have like a key element that they're that they're that's kind of like their specialty like for leo it's fire and for cheryl it's ice um and things like that but it'd be interesting to see how you, you you'll have like six or seven party members but have it where you can only have three at a time and having to make sure that you have whatever elements covered needed for um any specific boss encounter here i have a question for you two that are further in the game so so far through part one the way that the story is set up and it progresses, you never really have true say in who your party is. It's kind of just determined by where characters are in the story. Is that still the case for part two or does it get to a point where you kind of get to pick out of a set? Uh, I'll handle this one. So the, where part one leaves off, it's not really a super big cliffhanger. Like that things were happening at the cusp and it wasn't like, oh my gosh, you know, um, the things open up really fast at Fantasia Part Two because from that point, obviously, I'm not going to spoil anything, but they they kind of ease you in again with like, okay, you're kind of back in this um, the starting town area, and then Leo is at a point in uh, where he's with two other party members, but he's he was separated from two others um, at at the end of Part One. It's like, okay, well, first things first, I'm gonna go um, find them again. So you get like, interestingly enough, it's very different from the get-go from where part one leaves off which is a very linear experience they give you several story quests at once it's like okay there were these two things that uh crashed into this uh the the capital and here to, to the northeast area and the or northwest area to this tundra region and that's like a new area one of the new, er- new areas you go to so it kind of it leaves you uh it leaves it to you to decide what order of story quests do I want to tackle these in? Because you're at this point, you're just trying to get like your party members back. And once you start getting those party members back, uh, 
it, you need to have a party of more than three, and now you have like complete control over um, what your party makeup will be. The really cool thing I like uh, about Fantasian Part Two is the way it handles its party switching mechanic, because uh, once you get uh, some of your uh, people back into your party, let's say I have four in my party, you have three on field, one in the back line. Everyone still gains experience from from battle. No matter what, the equal amounts of experience. There's no lesser experience or whatnot. And in in mid battle, if you want to switch to your uh, other party member, remember Leo has like a warp device to to fast travel. So that's how they contextualize. Oh, we'll just warp in another person in this battle, and you, it doesn't consume a turn. It like if you want to oh. say if you want to switch out uh, the robot dude with uh, Ez, which is like the the, the thief. The, the robot dude will just uh, say, hey, change to uh, easy or as, and then it does, it'll still have as turn. You're still uh, operating that turn uh, without sacrificing a turn. And you can even switch back if you're like, say, oh, I didn't want to switch, switch back to the robot guy. So you can just really switch them back and forth without consuming a turn. So, so, in that so way, it's Final Fantasy X, which I'm, I'm basically grinning right now because I'm like, thank God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you're still you're still utilizing you know the full breadth of abilities and equipment on your party and whatnot. So you're you're in mid battle. You're thinking about now. You're thinking about not only when am I going to switch per, uh, people in, but remember in Fantasian, since you can uh, since the arc of your abilities and spells can vary depending on your character's physical position in your party, depending on like if they're in the third slot, their mm -hmm, the arc mm -hmm. of their spells will alter a different way because of their placement now you're starting to think about that element of like okay i want to slot i want to change this party member this party member because they're in the certain slot and because of that slot i can now curve this spell that way and hit more enemies that way and that's really really cool yeah like uh i this is me this is me kind of conjecturing in my head having not played part two but like Cheryl might be more suited for being in the center because she does more AOE where you might want to have someone like Leo on the edge where they can do across the diagonal of the field and hit more of the enemies. Um, but of course it depends on the layout of the enemies and whatever new spells you get in part two. So no, that's, and I'm glad, so it's like Final Fantasy X, only unlike Final Fantasy X, you don't have to switch people in to get them experience. The fact that they just get it all by default is really nice. Yeah, and uh uh, obviously, like at the end of part one, there's not really a spoiler because they already showed it in trailers, and whatnot. But like near, near the end of part one, you start gaining access to like skill trees uh, for your party members. Like only Leo gets like at the end of part one, but as more and more uh, characters are like reintroduced in this one, they get access to their skill trees too through certain story events. And uh, it's it's really cool. Like we found out back then when we were playing part one that when you're filling out these skill trees. Um, you can also refund all your skill points back without any, you don't have to use an item, you can do it freely at any time. And then each of these skill trees has like a specialty for like some characters may have like, you want to use, um, do you want this character to be focused on like DPS grenades because he easy has like grenade skills? Do you want to be focused on that or do you want them to focus on buffing and debuffing and whatnot? And you'll be, you might be in a situation where you're up against like a certain tough fight. And it's like, okay. Let me actually reshuffle or uh, reshuffle my skills and my skill trees and think about like a, a better strategy for this. So there's a lot of like customization that you're um, given uh, already on the offset of part two. Like I'm not really that far into it, but I'm really impressed that everything feels flexible now. I don't feel so corralled into this like linear story path, and you even have like agency over where you want to go next, and then 
proceed from there. I think the the one weakness so far is because it has this open story structure now. It's kind of similar to like how the the way Final Fantasy VI progresses, like having a linear first part and then the the, the other half of the game is like a lot more open. Um, the I think I'm what I'm worried about because it's kind of it kind of peaked its head over a little uh, here and there is depending on what party members you decide to get first obviously the the story scenes aren't flexible enough to um take into account that you have this party member now and you went to go rescue that one so they always have like that that party member that you rescued first they won't be in the story scenes for the other uh. one because they didn't account for that so hopefully that's just like a little minor thing that like now that i have most of my members back ho- hopefully that now they're going to be all more involved in like whatever happens next so that that's kind of a little thing it's like oh well this car this character didn't show up in this cutscene for now because the story had to account for whether i rescued them first or second etc yeah that's they don't even show up in the in like in the rear and they just don't speak they just literally don't appear not from what i remember uh so that, that's unfortunate but hopefully it's just for that section of the game like i guess the the go-to comparison here is like final fantasy 6 world of balance world of ruin stuff um Mm -hmm. where hopefully like once you get past that arc at the beginning of part two obviously then it's no longer a factor so it would have been really cool to see if they'd had a pre-plan for like the permutations about even even if they had just like a generic line to say like oh you could have had um Cheryl at this point or or Kina at this point mm-hmm. but oh well yeah I'm interested Minor to see network. how that uh, yeah how that uh, unfolds but other than that I'm I'm really excited to keep on going I, there was uh, this is this is a, an experience that'll be probably unique to you and me uh, Brian where and there, there was like a good maybe 20 to 30 minutes uh, when I first picked it I was like okay I have to like relearn how to ride this bicycle how did this battle system work again and uh, there's kind of like a readjustment period because there's no there's no real tutorialization or anything for like returning players so when i went to go reload my uh, my save it's like you're still using the same save file it's just i had to go through like the little story summaries they give you out of like the events in the story section and like kind of remembering the the context and then relearning like okay this is how the dimension mechanics work is how like spells work and whatnot. So there's like a there's a little bit of an adjustment period of like, okay, how do this is how does this game work again? But when was the last time you played this game? I can't remember now. Like April, I want to say. Yeah, like I said, it was like March or April. I don't. Yeah, uh, feels like longer than that. We're at we're still at the it time does. of of uh, we're still in like the space where time feels weird with all the real life happenings and other stuff and how front loaded yeah. this year was in terms of releases as well and now we're kind of in more of a dry period so it's actually a really really good time for Fantasian part two to land i think i think it could have easily like fallen through the cracks if it did end up releasing like late october or november uh so i do actually think that uh this is earlier this than the, anyone this, expected yeah. but it's a kind of this a really like nice the prime time. time for it this was the perfect time for it yeah I so james came out a good time so James, I just want to make sure we kind of get your final thoughts uh, as I know you're not done with it yet, but just in general, like, how do you feel about uh, what you've played in terms of like the presentation of the game or um, the, the, just the story premise or if, if it felt awkward going straight from part one to part two without any gaps? No, actually, I feel like um, it's very clear that the game was designed to be the full package in the first place because you don't get that credit sequence anymore. It's just completely axed entirely. It's just unless somebody told you specifically where the gap was between part one and part two, 
You probably wouldn't know it now. You probably just wouldn't know. That's interesting. But I've been really enjoying it so far. And honestly, the story has been surprisingly good, too. Like, so Fantasian's story isn't deep, I'd say. But I really do enjoy some of the memories, which are basically like the kind of Lost Odyssey-like... Uh, um, Thousand Year Door type deal. That's like yeah. the text adventures. It's not Thousand Year Door. Thousand Years of Dreams. They have Thousand Year Door. You know, like... That one RPG. <laughs> <laughs> also a great game, but quite different. But one thing that I know that a lot of people are worried about going into part two was that a lot of folks said, and I can see what they meant, that part one, one of its greatest strengths was, yeah, at the very beginning, like maybe the battles and the stories was a bit slower paced. But once you really got into it, there was like a nice clip of uh character like backgrounds like really touching story moments even like between the cast and whatnot and a lot of folks i saw were worried about like okay so part two is going to be more quest focused how is that going to impact the story and yet you have all these side quests that I'm, i'm sure some of these that josh hasn't done that tie either directly into the main story or they'll give you these little scenes that you might not have run into anyways after you get a certain character back they realize that they've lost an item that's kind of precious to them in the process of getting it back you have to find something to trade for it to another like npc i don't want to talk about this because i kind of want to i want josh to be able to uh, see this for himself but yeah i mean uh, like uh, we don't have to go deep into anything right now because it just barely came out a lot of people are excited to I will say, though, that having having the discussion on it right now is making me like I've been kind of dragging my feet like, oh, part two, I better re-up my Apple Arcade subscription or trial and uh, get back to it. And now I'm uh, after I'm I'm more energized to do that now after hearing you guys talk about it. It's definitely too early to say, but I feel like if the rest of the game is as good as part two has been so far, Fantasia is going to be really high up there in our game of the year thing at the end of the year that's the feeling i'm getting i'm not sure how josh feels but i I, i'm interested to to see where it'll land like i I think a lot of the what hinges upon the game for me is uh, how the how where where it lands and does it like you know i hope it doesn't fumble like the final stretch of it um but i think it's the game is already noteworthy because of the way the unique way it was uh made like the, the unique dioramas and whatnot, especially the, the the new tundra area, I was really impressed by some of the effects and attention to yeah. detail that went into that region. So I think it's already noteworthy for Uematsu's. that that alone. And yeah, Uematsu's OST is just fantastic in it. I think one of my main takeaways from the early part of the game was how well they gave each character like voice in terms of the way their dialogue is presented, even though there is no voice acting. So. Uh, part of me feels like there was voice acting for a second (laughs) no no there is no voice acting but just the way that certain characters are speak in their text is done pretty well where like cheryl is uh obviously has a different upbringing to kina did i say kira earlier i meant kina um where they have basically opposite upbringings and they speak very differently so there's some times where i wonder if the game would be elevated with voice acting but it does a really strong job even uh, in its in its absence so uh, i'm interested to see like how things escalate in terms of 
you know, character development, storytelling, and just like the plot itself was really starting to ramp up and really kind of, they picked a good spot for it to cliffhang at for those of us who did have the gap between part one and part two. I thought it had the potential to be t in the upper part of like our end of your deliberation. So I'm really curious to see uh, if part two kind of fulfills that potential and if it sticks the landing. We will probably follow up uh, either next week or the week after once we get uh, more. I know there's uh, other than us three, there's other people on staff that have been really eager to to play through the game. Some of us from part one and some of us from the very beginning. Keep your eyes out for that. Another game that we had brought up previously on a podcast, not quite as far back as April, but a few weeks ago, was something that uh, Josh had been putting some time into, and that was Dodgeball Academia. Now, the first time that we had a chance to talk about this, uh, you'd only just sunken your teeth into it. You had kind of just talked about the general premise and uh, some of the challenges you were having with it. Have you finished it since then, or have you uh, just continued to put some more time into it? Uh, just what are your follow-up thoughts on Dodgeball Academia? Yeah, I finished it uh, a few weeks ago, I just uh, but since I had other things going on in life, like I, it, it took me a while to get to it. Uh, by the time... Either by the time this uh, this is out, or maybe it's already out, uh, I'll probably have a review up. It's uh, almost done, and it's a it's a cute little game. It's uh, from Pocket Trap. It's a indie studio in Brazil, and it's kind of a weird uh, marriage of dodgeball and RPG mechanics, and the way how how are how they translate dodgeball like systems into uh, RPG format. Uh, I've mentioned this a few weeks weeks back about the premise, like to, you have this uh, character named Otto. Um, he attends this dodgeball school, and it, the beginning of the game is really funny because like they have this hero's dodgeball that's lodged in stone, and whoever touches it, they kind of awaken like the potential for like getting dodgeball powers essentially. So everyone has like a, a super move in that game where Otto has like a Shinku Hadoken from Street Fighter. Um, Mina has like you can summon lightning bolts from the from the sky, and whatnot. You have like a healer character, and uh, they fulfill that role. And how battles are done in this is uh, up to three versus three people can participate in a single dodgeball match. And un unlike the sport of dodgeball, uh, of if when you get a single hit on you, you're out. Everyone has a, a life meter on them, so they can take several hits uh, before they go down. Um, when they go down, they're they either either you know excluded from the rest of the match, or uh, they go behind enemy lines because some uh, you know rules of dodgeball allow for this, where they can like ass still assist from behind enemy lines when they're knocked out. Um, and it's a it's really just a cute little RPG. The I mentioned last time has like a Saturday Saturday morning cartoon vibe to it and then what you're doing around uh the school is you're trying to win this tournament because um Otto's parents uh come from a line of referees and then uh Otto's dad comes after him and he's like hey what what happened why are you ditching this you can't just ditch this what a the line hell are you of doing referees like yep. lineage <laughs> okay. yep mm -hmm. and it's like and then Otto's like I, I want to become a dodgeball player I don't want to become a referee anymore it's like Otto's dad's like all right you, you I'll let you off the hook only if you win this tournament. Wow. Like, okay, well, sure. So that becomes his overall goal in the game is to win this tournament. Along the way, he'll meet like uh, new teammates along the way. And it's it's really funny how you get across like this overworld because you're just uh it's it's a small little like section. You have this school, and then to the north of it is like a forest, to the like the north east of it is like a tundra region, and then 
Uh, so and then you have this underground super area too that you sort Wait, of navigate. A tundra region near a school. Yep, there's a Where northeast. The you, 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 there's a, there's like a cable car that you can take from the school to this tundra ice region. <laughs> I like how it's like they have an RPG. They have an idea for an RPG, but they want to make it like quirky and like you know why can't an RPG center around the sport of dodgeball? But we're still gonna have like the ice area. <laughs> we're still gonna incorporate yeah. Have you ever played Super Cuneo dodgeball? Yeah, I have. I actually mentioned it in, in my review. It's like one of my uh, when I think of a dodgeball game, that's the first thing I think of. Uh, the the Kunio Kun dodgeball game is has sick as hell. I really enjoyed that. Uh, but you know, there's been other like uh, recent dodgeball games like uh, Knockout City that has been doing really well. People seem to really enjoy that. And um, yeah, so uh, uh, you have as you're going around like the school and other areas. Like you can make auto spin, literally spin up like Sonic. He has like a Sonic spin dash. It has like a a sound effect that's very close to that spin dash sound effect. It's just to go, go around that school and other regions that much faster, because you're trying to get from place to place, and everything's clearly marked on the map. It also has uh, has um, influence from the Pokemon series, where that you don't get into like random encounters, but there are other players around the school that have like a, a like a fist icon by them. And then if they see you, they kind of go, hey, what are you doing? Let's go play a dodgeball match. And goes, -na 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 -na. <laughs> you get their money when you beat them, too. Yeah, you do get money. Yeah, you, you, you get like 30 cents off of these uh, people. And then like big fights, you'll get like $2. And it's like, <laughs> and, yeah, it's really funny because they like, when you're going through like school, you don't have a lot, a lot of money. So it's kind of, the economy of this game is kind of, reflects that. It's like, oh, you want to try to buy a candy bar. All right, it's $1.50. It's like, oh, man. But I only have like three bucks on me. Do I really want this candy bar to like raise my health? So and it's also cool too when yeah with each consumable because everyone has like uh are either loves likes is neutral on or dislikes the like certain consumables. So if you feed them something like they like, uh, it'll do like a certain amount. But if they love it, it like say um a health item, and it heals for ten HP. If they like it, it's like okay, cool, all ten HP. Let's go. But if it's like if it's if they love it, it might heal like fifteen HP. But if they dislike it, it might heal like only seven or six or whatnot, depending on how much they dislike it. And, and one of the really cool little touches about it is um, one of the characters, Suneko, she's lacto lactose intolerant, so there'll be certain consumables that she just cannot have because she's lactose lactose intolerant. So it's kind of a like a cool little like it, building out that character in subtle ways as well. Um, and you know the. This uh, game becomes really insane because the when you're translating RPG mechanics into dodgeball, you can have a lot of fun with it. So there are characters that can like infuse elements into like their dodgeball throws. So Otto can like if he does a dodge throw, uh, a charge throw, he can like infuse fire into that dodgeball, and then if it hits someone, it inflicts the burn status on them. Or um, if you inflict shock on the dodgeball, it'll like stun them for a bit. And then there'll be uh, on top of that. Uh, certain characters can throw the dodgeball in different ways. So Balloonie, kind of like the white mage of your party, has like healing skill. Um but when he eventually he learns a skill where he can throw the dodgeball and it travels circular. So it's just kind of like it's not really following the physics of dodgeball anymore. It's just like it's just traveling very slow but in a very circular motion to them. And sometimes you want to throw it slow because uh both your characters and enemies alike can either cap uh, catch or uh, counter dodgeballs uh, right back at you, just like an immediate counterattack, like kick it back at you. And so you wanna you wanna have to 
uh, change the the timing of your throws to either be a fast throw or a slower throw to kind of trip them up a little. Does the game make and, any attempt to like ground these elements into like something more real, or is it just like no, nah, just go with it? The dodgeball's on fire now. That, the, that's uh, how they contextualize it is because like this hero's dodgeball uh, in the in the when in the beginning when auto touches like it gives him this power of like to do like really it's basically like giving you magic with dodgeballs essentially. <laughs> so there so there will be characters like one of like your um, rivals is like. The hero's dodgeball won't acknowledge me. It won't give me any power. I can't believe this. He just he's just really pissed off that he doesn't have like any cool powers, which is you know I get it. Man, um, I was on fire. It was like a the kid's imagination or something. No, this this is all real. This is this is as real as I can get. And then there'll be um, you have an equipment system. You can uh, equip like armor or certain things that you so things that'll like maybe charge your super meter faster or give you more defense or give you more agility to run around. The, the court um, faster and whatnot. What are so some it's example kind of, armors? Is it like stuff that would be like suited in universe, like Letterman jacket or? Uh, yeah, yeah. So like it, it could be like it could be like 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 a skull ring where you have to like sacrifice some of your health, but you'll get a, like a lot of power out of it. And then like yeah, it's just a lot of little trinkets and items that you might find like around the school and whatnot. It's not uh, like sometimes you'll you'll get like golden socks, and then these golden <laughs> socks give you. Um, like raised agility and attack uh, as long as you don't get hit. Gaudy class match. ring. Yeah, pretty down. much. Yeah. So and it's um this this game has no voice acting, but you you remember back a few months ago when we were like criticizing Fantasian for its text adventures for not really playing around with its text too much the way that Lost Odyssey did. Like right. they made, like they would animate the text. And this game is really full of personality when it comes to animating that text. Like if someone's like one of the first NPCs you beat has like a very surfer dude kind of vernacular. So his text is like more wavy. It's animating that waviness to his text. And it's a really, it gives a, a bit of more attitude to it. It is really nice, uh, which I really enjoyed. That actually is where a thousand years, thousand year door reference might work. Cause that game does similar stuff with text. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. That's how, that's how they do a lot of their characters and give them their, like their personality through text. Mm-hmm. So I, I like, I think this is a like a really neat, uh, cute game that I think anyone who really likes dodgeball would like to see how that translates into an RPG. They should check this out. It's a really, it's a really cute, charming game. I, I think there, there's a lot of creative stuff that they that they put into this game uh, to just kind of it, it exudes that that amount of like, huh, that's a really cool, I neat idea that like I would have never thought of like when you're thinking about dodgeballs and RPGs. Uh, I, was I think thinking the, about something. You know that level five soccer game. In Azuma what? Eleven, I think. Yeah, does that have a lot of RPG elements to it, or is this like a soccer game? I I I know I had never really played it in Azuma, in Azuma Eleven games. So I can't speak to how RPG it is. I know it is like filled with like uh, Captain Tsubasa type like crazy over the top moves. I know that's like very. Uh, it's not like true. The page in Azuma Eleven is a role playing sports video game for the Nintendo. Oh Vita. shit! There you <laughs> wow. go. There, it's there time for Josh to sink into one of those games. Well, the make level five uh, ever come out with a game here again, and then we'll be just talking. <laughs> and I think the the weakest parts about this game is that it kind of drags on for too long, especially in the final stretch where they're just like, "Oh, you did you 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 done something, but there's something else." And then as you're doing something else, there's like, let's say the like for example, there's there's something that happens at the school, and you have to go find the principal. 
But then when you have to go find the principal, his door is locked, and it's like I don't know which keys uh, to uh, to use. So it's like there's three there's three separate keys and uh, three separate classrooms that you have to all gather before you come back here and go to, uh, find out which key uh, unlocks the principal's room. And it's like this really didn't need to be here. This is like kind of more filling it out and just kind of wasting your time. But it, it's it's not the biggest deal. I think my favorite side quest in this game, though, is that you find this dude in the bathroom, the school bathroom, and it's like, what are you doing here? He's like, hey, you want to go play, like, imaginary dodgeball? I'm like, what the fuck? Uh, yeah, let's go play imaginary dodgeball. And then it goes into this, like, turn-based battle system. Like, this is the only time you ever see this in the game. Like, imagine what dodgeball would be with a turn-based battle system, but you're playing imaginary dodgeball. So, like... In the bathroom. So... Yep, in the bathroom. So you have these uh, um, uh, commands of like throw, um, guard, and and it's and you're trying to get like three successful hits before one of you uh, is eliminated. So you're literally just playing imaginary dodgeball in your heads um, with a turn-based command system. Um, imagining what this game would look like with that. It's like it's really funny. It's really goofy. I'm like, all right, sure, why not? And one of the uh, other side quests that I like is there's this persistent. Uh, side quest throughout the entire game but it's easy to like it's not easy to miss but it's easy to just like you know for it not to like enter your head even though it's like clearly marked on the map where there's this dude who like you have to fight uh once a day and like this game spans over like eight days i believe so there's like persistent side quests where you have to always make sure to like follow up with this guy it's like okay i'm gonna beat you now i'm gonna beat you now it's all and it's always like a different kind of like type of fight like different like modifiers might be in play where he might only have one hp but he's very hard to hit because like maybe like dodgeballs are surrounding him and it's hard to pe- penetrate through that shield or whatnot for example but you just have to get that one hit it's like different stuff like that so it's just it has, a, it has goofy side quests um and like a really fun vibrant tone to it it's it's cool and i recommend that if you know if that if whatever i said sounds somewhat appealing to you definitely check it out it's on Game Pass. I feel like I'm obligated to say that for some reason. Oh, okay. This podcast, cool. this podcast yeah. is not supported by Game Pass. Oh, it should be. Well, I wanted to take a minute here to talk about a game that I've been playing, mainly because um, I brought it up on previous podcasts. It's not a new release, but I had mentioned previously a desire to finish out the Yakuza series this year because I kind of skipped ahead to play Yakuza 7, which is obviously uh, like a dragon here in the West, um, which is obviously a big RPG release for us last year. And I had had a gap where I had not played about half of the other Yakuza games. So I made it kind of a personal goal of mine to to go back through those. Uh, On the docket, I still had to play through Yakuza's 5 and 6. And I'm finally working my way through Yakuza 5. And unfortunately, if you're a fan of Yakuza 5, uh, either skip ahead mm-hmm. or, or grit your teeth. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am not. So I've loved Yakuza 7, Like a Dragon. I really like Yakuza 1, uh, even though it's limited. Yakuza 0 is one of my favorites. I found even 3 pretty pretty damn charming, even though it is a bit of an um, adjustment going from some of the newer remakes, like the Kiwami games, into Yakuza 3, which only has a remaster. Yakuza 5, I am really struggling to get through. I am feeling like I am playing it out of obligation. I'm feeling like I've kind of set a goal for myself to get through it, and that's my motivating factor. I am just not really having fun. For those that aren't, you know, invested in the series, Yakuza 5 is probably kind of the most ambitious 
of the first six slash seven games in terms of how many locations you visit, how many characters are involved, the different sorts of gameplay mechanics that they throw in, some well thought out, some very, very rudimentary and not very fun at all. Unfortunately, like I, I have probably not had a less enjoyable experience playing a game in a long while, which kind of sucks because I enjoyed so many other games in the series so much. And Yakuza 5, I am just really not feeling in terms of what they're doing with the story. It feels like it's very, very scatterbrained in terms of what what character interactions they involve when they they introduce new characters when I don't think they need to. Um, And then also just in terms of gameplay, they just shove basically Yakuza 5 follows up on the trend of Yakuza 4 where it involves multiple protagonists. You're not just playing as uh, Kiryu. And with each protagonist, they kind of change up what sort of side stories they're involved in, you know, and what sort of mini games are, are available to them, what sort of areas they initially have access to. It just seems very, very like kitchen sink approach. And I feel like the game is much weaker for that. Yeah, a lot of people have that same opinion. I think one of the things I heard about it, I think the Haruka segments drove this player insane from what I heard from her. So yeah, just... that's, a, that, that's a key part is that obviously um, this is the first and only game in the series so far where you play as Haruka, who is a very major character in the series. So like the fact that she's playable here on its face is fine. And the way that she... The, her primary gameplay mechanic is through like dance battles or singing mini games, which I also think is fine, like on its face, like, okay, that's an, that's an okay idea to involve that character into the story that way. The only problem I think really is that a kind of drags on for too long. B there's not a lot of variety. Like it's one of those things where you first hear like the first major song that she sings as part of her like quest to become an idol. But you end up hearing the same song like four or five or more times, depending on how many sub stories you do. Some of the sub stories in this game, which normally sub stories in Yakuza games are like where you get like the wacky side stories or like kind of clever like twists in terms of something that starts out wacky but ends up being pretty poignant, things like that. But for Haruka, a lot of times it's like, why don't you sing that same song that you've heard six times in this location of the city standing on a beer crate or, or stuff like that? And it's just like it's really old, really fast. And on top of that, the game takes forever to tie her story into like the overarching narrative. It feels like anime filler. The first 80% of when you're, uh, when it introduces her and her chapter. And that's kind of a problem. I think the game has generally where you jump from character to character and it just takes too long for it to like figure out why is this relevant? Why is this interesting? And that's something that I didn't have to be that way. A lot of times my favorite parts in video games and in RPGs in general is when they have these side stories that aren't directly tethered to the main plotter or aren't exactly like they may not push the narrative forward, but it it might show you like a side of the character you haven't seen before or give them the chance to interact in environments that the main story hasn't allowed it to. But for I just think Yakuza 5 just doesn't do it that well. I you One of the characters you play as is Taiga um Saijima, who also appeared in Yakuza 4 and in later games. And it doesn't do anything interesting with his character. It kind of just goes through like the same sorts of story beats that it already went through in Yakuza 4. So I just feel like this isn't interesting. I've already sort of seen this. Um, I feel kind of bad that I like felt like, oh, time to talk about Yakuza 5 and how much I'm not gelling with it. But there are certain hey, things. It, it, it has to be said. <laughs> For what it's worth, I don't think your opinions are like completely against the grain i've heard similar that the game is just like too long too many sections that don't really come together and things like that so i i have heard these sorts of 
you know, comments before. Obviously, I'm not saying everybody agrees with that, but it's not like you're just some outlier here. Yeah, I was talking with Brian earlier, and I, I was thinking of like what do people really like about Five because it's such a it feels like a very disjointed, uh, overlong, stretching game. And I guess for the time when you're thinking about what you want out of a video game, Yakuza Five is definitely the most the most video game out of the Yakuza games outside of like maybe seven. Um, where at that time, when you think about all the Yakuza games prior to it, it it felt like RGG Studios like we want to just have all of Yakuza, but in one game. And it's like, okay, well, and it just, it, it felt like any idea that came to, to their desk during the Yakuza 5's development, they're like, yes, we should include that. Yes, we should include that. Saijima imagining the city and uh, going through it, yes, we'll put it there. <laughs> it's like, oh man, the, the, like, this 5 really, really needed to, like, cut a good chunk of it, cut that out, but they, they've, People really want content in their games. If you want quantity over quality, Five might be the game for you because they sure put in a lot of things. You, uh, should we have a hunting uh, mini game in this game? Yes. Should, <laughs> are you sure? Yes. Actually, drive. I, I was watching Brian do the hunting part, like he was just streaming it one night, and he spent like four hours just doing hunting and like, in a hunting. Sure. The thing is, it's that, like if they had lessened the number of things the number of kitchen sinks in this weird pot uh i think they could have made some of them compelling but some of them just feel so thin where when you're doing this game and all the yakuza games sorry i'm getting the thoughts together have sub stories and that's kind of like something that i really really enjoy about them because they they take like the serious crime genre and allow it to like have that levity kind of have this like kitschy wacky sort of feeling that they kind of pair alongside and this is something you sort of see in some other developers like i think uh, machine games have sort of had the similar sort of dynamic between serious storytelling and kind of like wacky, goofy alongside. You can end up being paired together pretty well. But then Yakuza 5 also introduces side stories, not sub-stories or sub-events where uh, Kiryu is a taxi driver or Saijima goes hunting or Haruka does her dancing things. It's just that each one, I feels like, didn't get the attention it deserved to really be compelling. Like one of Haruka's sub-events in her side story of becoming an idol is handshaking mini games where she's like at a meet and greet and people will come up to her. And the whole mechanic of this is you just hold the X button to shake someone's hand until you see like the bouncer going to like shoo the line away. Cause they're like crowding the line or taking too much time. And that's, that's the extent of the mini game is you hold one button for like five seconds, then you let go. Then you hold the button for like five seconds, then you let go. And it's not interesting at all. And if you want to like see her story through the completion, you've got to do that like six, seven, eight, nine times. And then that's just one example. The hunting also gets really thin where it's just like you hunt either rabbits, deer or bear. And that's it. You do that four times each. And then taxi driving (laughs) is pretty thin too. It's like if they had cut two of those out and made one system where maybe all the characters got involved in a certain sort of mini game that changed how like gave it, gave it a little bit more meat to the bone or something like that. Maybe it could have been interesting, but right now it just feels like really diversionary, really thin, not that compelling. Yeah. I'm remembering that they need to have you do a whole tutorial about uh, learning about traps and hunting now too. Yeah. so if, uh, if, well, you're, uh, if you I, haven't played the Yakuza series, uh, don't get into five until you're in the same mind space I am and you're in like completionist mode where you're like, all right, I kind of want to know like what happened here so that I can carry it forward into like a dragon and future entries. But as a standalone game, I'm unfortunately just not enjoying it. 
I'm curious to hear about Ryan's thoughts uh, as he moves forward because we haven't even touched like the, like the 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 brand new protagonist at the very end. Uh, his whole deal. Oh, yeah, man. I'm almost to the last protagonist of Yakuza Five, um, who, as far as I know, appears here and nowhere else. So, <laughs> so kind of like one of the protagonists in Yakuza Four, who appears there and nowhere else for some reasons that are ex- ex- uh, external to the game. Hopefully, you- it's interesting in in a vacuum, but we'll see. Go ahead, Chow. Uh, I was gonna say, is it the cop? Cop playable in four, and I remember he got like a like. There was uh, there was some sort of drama involving that the actor uh, face actor, and we saw some of this with Judgment, where one of the one of the actors there had issues with. Uh, um, I don't remember. I don't know the details, and I'm not going to guess for fear of getting it wrong. But basically, uh, just with their agencies and with their uh, their talent contracts, if they end up having some of these investigations, it, it becomes very difficult to continue using their their face models and their voice actors in the future games. So they end up kind of just being withheld to the one game they originally appeared in so you know, you know how it is chow if, you, if you're if you're accused of uh dealing with drugs in japan and you're convicted your is done. yeah you, you none of your things exist anymore <laughs> yeah they, they redo the face model and then like if you play the pc version of yakuza 4 you can actually like mod in the original face and, well, and wait voice. a second wasn't the Yakuza four like situation? Wasn't the guy like not even like convicted? Yeah, I, I, I don't remember I, I the details, but it was yeah, something not, like not, he was convicted, or yeah, he was charged but not convicted. He ended up getting like uh, not guilty verdict or whatever. But it doesn't matter, I guess, in some respects. Yeah, even even if you even if you're just charged, like as long as like you're under that public eye, and even if you come away innocent, uh, you still have you still have that stigma on you, and that's just that's you know, fucked the, up. That's just the cultural norms there. Yeah, I remember this one actress I really liked. I remember she got into like this huge scandal because her husband was involved in drugs, but she didn't do anything. But her career is basically destroyed from it. Uh, I think it, her name was Noriko Sakai. I, I don't remember, dude. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, she was really famous in the nineties. Yeah, that sounds familiar, but, it's but yeah, it was like it was her husband's fault. But hey, <laughs> it's like shit happens, you know. Speaking of actors and actresses, it was really cool to see a character, um, Romy Park. It has a big mm-hmm. uh, role in Yakuza 5, so I don't like the story she's in, but good voice actor, good good actress. So, mm-hmm. that was cool. There. Which character does she play in there? She, she, she plays uh, she plays um, Haruka's basically instructor, slash uh, like agent. So, yeah. Going into stuff up on the site from the last week, uh, we do have a couple of features, some of which are exciting and interesting about upcoming games, and one of which was something I actually wasn't expecting us to have a feature on, uh, but it appeared anyway. So something that came up in the last couple of weeks was a new Netflix Monster Hunter film called Legends of the Guild. We kind of talked about this very briefly, how it features a character from the series that I guess is named Aiden. And I don't know if maybe James can elaborate on this. He's in Monster Hunter World as like excitable A-lister. But I guess in other entries, he is named uh, as a more fully featured character. And he is the protagonist of this new film, Legends of the Guild. Though I don't know how much interest there is in the Monster Hunter fan base to have like these characters appear in these stories or how much excitement there was over this film. But luckily for us, maybe... 
one of our contributors decided to watch the film and write up on it so that you don't have to, I suppose, or we don't have to. Um, so Paige did write up a feature up on the site for this Netflix movie, basically calling it a weird, breakneck-paced, interesting-looking movie that probably shouldn't have left the hub. I don't know if anyone else has any comments or any interest in seeing this movie at all. We do have a write-up from Paige. Uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting because when we were looking at this movie, we saw it was kind of in our wheelhouse. We have sort of covered these sorts of things before. And uh, one of our editors asked some of us if we were interested in covering this, those of us that have played Monster Hunter games, and we're like, no, this really just doesn't interest us. Uh, and the one person who did watch it kind of said, no, you're not missing much by skipping on this. So we do have that up, do have that up on the site if you're morbidly curious about some thoughts on Legends of the Guild. It where, is where's our write-up? Uh, where, where's Ox's write-up of uh, the Dragon's Dogma Netflix show, dude? Yeah, that was something that kind of came and went. Where like he is probably the <laughs> biggest Dragon's Dogma fan I know. And then we had that weird like announcement for a Netflix show, and then it just like disappeared from the face of the earth. Like I don't think I heard anything about it, good or bad. It just I've didn't even. Bad. Resi- uh, okay. I, I watched, I watched really like bad. five or six episodes. I was like, I can't do this. It's pretty bad. Has Netflix had a hit yet in terms of any of these adaptations of video game IPs or anime IPs? Because I I know like the Ghost Witcher? in the Shell thing. Yeah. Uh, does the Resident uh, Evil thing count? Does what count? The Resident Evil CGI movies. The, those <laughs> never count, but they still make a shitload of money. Um, yeah, I, I guess like the, old, the only this... one is like Witcher in my in recent memory, but that's not oh, my yeah, action Witcher, adaptation. Well, Castlevania. Oh uh, uh, yeah, Castlevania. Yeah. Go ahead, Adam. The weird thing about this uh, Monster Hunter thing is that it was announced in 2018, and I think like literally just everybody forgot about it. Because when they announced this movie or this, they, I think they called it an anime at the time. They didn't like reveal any information about it other than like it exists and we're making it. And I think pretty much everyone just forgot about it until just sort of randomly last month, Capcom's just like, "Hey, it's here it is." Out. Yeah, here it is. I, I, okay. I guess everyone is right then. <laughs> all right, Chow. T- time for the time for the real big deal. When's your write up of uh, the all four Evangelion films that just hit Amazon Prime? Uh never happening. I, I hated <laughs> the original series, so it's not happening. <laughs> it's just that Monster Hunter is not. I've only played Worlds. So I don't want to be like an expert, but it's like it's not a narrative driven series, as my estimation, and it never was. So deciding that to be the IP that you make a a Hollywood movie out of, and b an anime-ish three cg adaptation out of just seems like a weird pairing from the outside i think the, it's not gonna say the most successful but i guess the the most true to spirit one was probably that 70 episode anime series for monster hunter stories i'm gonna guess probably yeah i, I guess stories is kind of their attempt to make it more of like a, a narrative driven rpg so having a story specific anime actually does seem like it would work on paper so. I didn't realize that Monster Hunter Stories anime was like 70 episodes. Like, but, you know, 13. I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's the, I mean, it was like right art or something. It'd be like a Pokemon. Probably. Yeah, that, it was definitely aimed for like way younger audiences around, uh, around that age. We also have some features up on the site, perhaps more interestingly, for the upcoming Tales of Arise. Obviously, this is a big RPG landing. Uh, is it next month? Is it in September? Yep. Yep, the 10th. Yeah, so lots of new information coming out of a bunch of the marketing from uh, the last couple of weeks. Let's roll through them. So first off, we were able to go have one of our contributors, Scott, go hands-on with it again. I think this is the second time we've had someone able to uh, play through uh, a preview developer build of the game. 
uh, earlier, George was able to do it uh, a few months They're ago. Being very proactive about that, making sure that like the the marketing cycle for this game is just like it's always relevant, it's always in the know. Like it's the, they're really going for it. Yeah, and we've we've just gone through like a few weeks of weekly character bios, and which obviously I think works for a very character driven party based RPG like this. And now we have basically uh, this preview hands on alongside the announcement of a console demo, which is coming out next week on August 18th. So essentially, we expect that basically it was just kind of early access to the demo. So Scott was able to go hands on and write up some of his thoughts on it. So this is kind of a feature up on the website. Mostly positive. Scott is a big Tales of fan. He's been really eager to see. Obviously, it's been a few years since the last entry. Uh, the, the few things that he kind of had reservations about were things called cure points. And Adam was actually able to follow up on this new mechanic in Tales of Arise with an interview with one of the Bandai Ninko producers of the game. Since we don't have Scott here, unfortunately, to go on details about his personal experience with the uh, hands-on, maybe, Adam, you can talk about what you were able to discuss with uh, Bandai Ninko about Tales of Arise and uh, go into what you were able to get out of them about this new cure point system. So Yeah, I got a chance to speak with Yusuke Tomizawa about Tales of Arise, and I asked them, you know, a handful of questions just about the game, their approach to it, and things of that nature. And in terms of the cure points thing, like, that's... So a lot of Tales mechanics, you know, are borrowed or have seen been, been seen before in the series. Like, oh, okay, it's this mechanic again. Like, for example, Tales of Arise has the soul gauge, which are the little diamonds from Tales of Bezeria in terms of how arts work in battle. So that's not new, I mean, it might be tweaked a bit, but it's it's like okay. It's we, on Tales of Rebirth as well. They have a diamond system. Oh, the there. diamond system, yeah, where you basically like pick them up in battle, and you can fill them other ways, and that's how you get currency to basically spend to to perform attacks. But there's also this cure point system, which, as far as I know, is no other game in the series has a system like this. So what it, how it works, how I understand it, I not, did not play the demo, but I talked about it with the producer, is that. You have a gauge, it's called Cure Points, which that name almost feels like a misnomer to me in some ways. It's CP, and it's, it's shared among the party. So it's not like each person has a Cure Point meter, it's for the whole party. And how it works is, if you are in battle, that's the meter you spend to do like healing arts. So it doesn't come out of your soul gauge, it comes out of this Cure Point pool. And also, if you happen to like die in battle, you are revived and it costs cure points like it'll just automatically spend some cure points and you'll be revived i don't know how often you're going to be dying in battle but that's i guess that's what happens and then kind of interestingly also these cure points as you're going through a dungeon area you'll run into things the example the producer gave was just like a wall that you might want to knock down in an area in order to do that you have to spend some cure points to do it that's where, that's where it kind of feels like a misnomer to me. Like, you spend cure points to knock down a wall. Like, okay, sure. Um, and apparently these open, like, secret rooms or secret paths, shortcuts, things of that nature. So not, like, required areas, but uh, zones that might have extra weapons or, you know, money or items or whatnot. And it becomes, I guess, a bit of a resource management thing where you decide, do you want to spend these or not to knock down walls? And if you want to heal up your cure points, you have to do that through items or cooking. And there's no other way to get them back. So do, it's sort do of you want another real answer to, that, to all this, though? 
<laughs> just get uh, just uh, buy a shitload of gels, and so you never have to use those cure points, uh, only for the exploration part of it. So you, there's no more choice. It's just like, I hope my party likes gels. Because there's no TP uh, mechanic, I, and now like the classic orange pineapple gels instead heal this party-based meter called cure points. Oh, are, do, 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 do gels only uh, heal cure points, not hit like health anymore? Well, the no, I think there's well, health gels. Yeah, like apple. Let's see, my tail's knowledge. Apple and orange gels will do health, and now pineapple and uh, whatever the other. I'm getting my gels mixed up. Orange, the, the orange gels, is for TP. Uh, apple is for HP. There you go. Yeah, so the, the ones that are normally TP are now cure points. And there's like a mixed version. But but uh, like uh, say like if you, might be, uh, if you always wanted to have uh, cure points for to not miss out on any secrets or whatnot. I guess what you would do is just like rely on like apple gels to make sure to take care of health and then use your cure points for like only the secret rooms and not have to sacrifice that mechanic. It's kind of weird I how guess. like all the resource management of this new cure point system will kind of come down to how readily available these gels are. Because if you can just kind of pretty easily stock up on money and gels and there's always have a stockpile on hand. And then like anytime you come across this gap or this wall you want to break down or this whatever in a dungeon and you're just like, oh, uh, I now I want this item. So I'm just going to, you know, chug down an apple gel or orange gel and then have enough cure points to get this secret. I'm going to go get it. And then it ends up kind of just making the whole management of this new system sort of meaningless. It just seems weird on paper. I don't know like how yeah, the game wonder, benefits yeah, from the this. Economy. Just have everyone have one HP always and just like, okay, you're still alive. Just never get hit. There you go. So you only need you one HP to I, stay so alive. It's possible this cure point system might just be a big nothing, but it, it kind of sticks out because it's different. Mm -hmm. No other game has a system quite like that. It's also... I don't know if this is a good thing or not, but I'm hoping that the explorable field areas, dungeons, things like that are improved over Berseria, because I think that was very obviously the weakest part of that game are these kind of copy-pasted fields and hallway dungeons. It's just kind of... Wasn't very, very drab and like the, battles, yeah. the battles were fine. The story, like, a lot of people like the characters. Um, but the, the just the actually like exploring the zones in that game is just really kind of just dull. Um, so I also asked Tomizawa about the exploration a bit. And he didn't offer a lot of insight, um, but he said there's things like you can swim, you can jump in terms of exploration, things you can interact with. There's going to be mini games. So there's no uh, there's no Sonic spin dash to get around faster or anything. I don't think so. Damn it. I also, um, then. I also asked him about the skits. I know people were interested in that. And this isn't really surprising, but essentially they, this, the Tales of Arise now uses a different sort of skit style where instead of using these sort of 2D anime like portraits, now it's the actual models themselves doing things in the environment. And his answer to essentially how are skits working in this game is effectively he wanted to use this these new 3D models because they like the models, but also for things like if you're using costumes or attachments, now they'll show up in skits because obviously you can't do that with a portrait. And, and if it's daytime or nighttime because there's a day or night system, that'll also be reflected in the skit depending on like, if it's at night when the skit activates, you'll see it at night. And I guess there might also be... Because skits can oftentimes take place anywhere. Um, sometimes they're location context sensitive, sometimes not, but 
there might be skits that depending on where it takes place or where you happen to activate it at that it'll it'll also take into account the environment you're in for that so if it's like a snow area or a field area or whatever so that was that's sort of the rationale for the new skit system is like it reflects your characters and where they are more more than they did before so and what we'll costumes see, it's, it's you definitely for different yeah and the costumes so if you <laughs> if you put on those like school costumes they always have or the swimsuit costumes they always i never have, liked that idea though skits. It's like people like dress up their character the most silliest way possible in this really serious cutscene. You know, it just takes away like the immersion. It's like I've uh, never been a fan of that. I, like, I, I like I like costumes that are just like alternate designs, like that would fit the world. Like, oh, okay, so here's you know the normal design, and here's a costume that's sort of like an alternate design that still makes sense, but not like, huh, I'm now in a maid costume. Like, oh, well, I remember sure. I was playing Scarlet Nexus a couple months ago, and uh, I always kept my characters in like their default costume because that's I didn't really care to like change it up. And then I will go to watch some YouTube videos because I want to like compare voice acting or, or rewatch a scene that I maybe didn't understand at first. And I see people just like earnestly playing in these weird, gaudy like attachment. And obviously, Scarlet Nexus <laughs> is like from X Tales uh, developers, so I'm not surprised that you can sort of see some common dna there and they just kind of have their whole roster and like these gaudy weird costumes and it, that's just something i've never done like i might do like an attachment here or there or like an alternate color scheme but never like here is this character now dressed like a maid or in a swimsuit i just i've never or, been interested in that you're like playing like uh, final fantasy 14 it's like you'll see this character dressed in like a bdsm costume playing the final boss or something i wasn't like... that far my my favorite is uh, i remember watching this is a weird tangent but I'll, I'll i'll line it up don't worry adam was playing final fantasy 13 2 and he always had his characters in the mass effect cameo costumes yes. because they had like the best yes. stats <laughs> so that was like the only reason he was using those so now like whenever i think of sarah or noel i think of them in these mass effect n7 armors which doesn't make any sense really but well it's sort of it's sort of i sort of like head candidate as like we are like space patrol uh time or time shifting i'm mm-hmm. cops like cops or squad or something but yeah <laughs> but that I, game I is silly enough I also think of uh, like I, I know people who play like the Trails of Cold Steel games with the the haha speech bubbles above their head. Just, oh yeah, those are funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's so dumb. Like, sure, I, wonder... I wouldn't do it, but you do you. I was gonna say I just recently played through East Nine, and they give you like those alternate color schemes, which are usually like not subtle. It's, it's a palette swap. <laughs> but they're palette swaps. But beyond that, they they go like for like neon pastel, really bright colors most of the time. It's not just like turn brown hair to black hair. It's oh, like, like turn candy. brown hair to pink hair or sea and blue hair and like really bright costumes. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't need this. I'll just keep you in your default outfit. I do wonder if Tales of Arise, since the, because of the dynamic nature of skits now and being able to use like their in-game models and whatever. The weather conditions like reflecting it. Um, if they will have like a Xenoblade Two or Definitive Edition type of feature where you can like rewatch those skits, but like said like the, the the weather and what costumes you want the characters to be in. Because be they cool. have like the event theater type stuff in those games where you can kind of like customize the scene the way you want it to and rewatch them like that. I do know that in Scott's preview for this game, he also briefly mentioned the combat felt a little bit stiff, and that you have basically three arts that you can shortcut for attacking while on the ground and then three aerial arts, and that's it. Where normally in a lot of Tales games, you have a lot more options than that, and they're not limited to being aerial or not. Well, sometimes they are. Like Certain characters are kind of designed as aerial characters. I'm thinking like Judith, where a lot of her arts... Judith, Judith they, they is either, really funny to like, learn her. 
Yeah, but I guess in Tales of Arise, it seems like basically you have three you have three shortcuts for on the ground and three in the air. Uh, they did mention that according to the the producer that there were some options not available in the in what Scott was able to play versus the final release of the game in terms of art shortcuts. I don't know if that's going to make it to this August eighteenth public demo or not, but basically, I guess there has been some reservations on the way that combat system works but i don't want to judge it too fairly because what what we've seen and experienced so far might not line up with the the release but yeah just... so with with some rpgs like this the combat system and other you know coordinating subsystems sometimes evolve pretty significantly throughout the course of the game whereas how the game looks to play and feels to play in hour five is very different than what it looks to feel looks and feels to play in like hour 40 where it evolves a lot i know in terms of the tail series vesperia is actually kind of what like that it's vesperia is somewhat clunky early on especially um especially relative like later games but it evolves quite a bit throughout the series as you literally unlock skills to chain more arts together to do fatal strikes and other combinations and things that you can do in that game so it's very possible that the demo that Scott played is it, it was early on, and that it could it could be a pretty simple, basic combat system early, but it might evolve pretty significantly after that, and it's just hard to say until you you know play it yourself. Well, we kind of so we kind of discussed that a little bit in a different way with Fantasia a bit, where right. early on it's just really trying to establish here are the core principles. We're not going to like twist or stretch them just yet. Just making sure you got the fundamentals down before we really start playing with the ideas. So, yeah. One of those things I think we should probably be prudent to kind of reserve judgment. But yeah, so that's a series of features up on the site. It is Scott's hands-on impressions. We've got Adam's interview with Tomozawa. We got obviously the new snippet just introducing that the, the demo is coming on August 18th. The demo is only on console. It's for PlayStation and Xbox, not on PC. Probably uh, wary of data mining or leaks or people somehow getting past like the limitations. We've seen other demos have that issue where they unlock the full game through some sneakiness. And then we also have actually uh, Scott put up a feature about the specific cure point system and uh, how it works, how it's different from TP, some initial thoughts on it, even though we don't have the full breadth of how it's incorporated quite yet. But so, yeah, I'm. Um but I'm really excited to get my hands on it in a few days. I think a lot of us are just going to are really curious about the game. And by the time the next podcast episode is going to roll around, we're going to have a lot more thoughts of like not actually having played the game, you know, just our initial first thoughts on it. I think, I think it's also cool that it's like being released simultaneously. I thought it was going to be released like a Scarlet Nexus fashion where Xbox would get it first, <laughs> then Sony, because, you know, I think, I think Xbox also has a marketing deal for a rise. But yep, September 10th, so less than a month for full release, and obviously the uh, the demo next week. I also asked uh, Tomizawa a very important question. I asked him at the very end of my interview, will there be more re-releases of previous Tales games in the series? Because there's a lot of them, and a lot of them are old. Um, and a lot of them are never, said, uh, were never localized. Yeah, and he basically said, it's possible. So uh, let so your imaginations run wild. <laughs> that's not, that's, yeah. that's as good as confirmation, Adam. It's happening. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I mentioned this to Adam when, you're, when I gave a read over his interview and uh, got to that question. But I also, uh, the, there's the Tales of YouTube channel. They've been running for all the Tales stuff for the mobile games and the marketing for Horizon and whatnot. And then they, the, throughout that, they share um, 
survey results uh with the, the the primarily japanese audience they since it's like a big uh, anniversary year for tales they say who's your favorite characters uh who are your, what are your favorite scenes and um in the tales games and then that uh, particular video like this this is all english captioned as well um if, for the number one spot in that most emotional uh favorite tales video uh tales uh, tales of rebirth won it uh with a very you know uh, important famous scene uh in that game and uh, fans love that and what really stuck out to me is tales of rebirth never got localized in the west and who knows if it ever will it should it's a it's a ps2 game but they went through the effort of making like translated english captions for this particular scene in tales of rebirth and it's like wow that's kind of weird that you would do that like you didn't have to but that's cool in terms of news for this week, a lot of the news about this Tales of Arise, the interviews, and the uh, the upcoming demo pretty much was the headliner. We do have a couple other things, a lot of it in terms of release dates, a few other uh, smaller announcements, uh, especially if you've become a fan of um, Apple Arcade because out of necessity in order to play Fantasia. Uh, we've got another surprise entry that's coming to the Apple uh, service, and that is a Castlevania title, Grimoire of Souls. Uh, Josh, teach me about what is Grimoire of Souls. Grimoire of Souls is a weird one. Uh, this is uh, initially announced for iOS, not Apple Arcade, it was back in 2018. And from and they had like a TGS 2019 trailer and whatnot. And this is like a your standard free-to-play mobile game with a gacha system and whatnot. And from what I understand, it it as far as Western releases, I think it had like a closed beta in Canada, I think, like maybe a, a, two years ago. Um, but now it's being resurrected as like an Apple Arcade exclusive. And it's, a, it's following a very similar trajectory to Platinum Games' World of Demons. Um, if you remember, it's, it was several years ago already, but there was this big blowout on World of Demons out of nowhere um, from big uh, gaming outlets saying, hey, here's a new mobile game from Platinum Games. And it it was the the game that has like a inkbrush Okami-esque uh, art style uh, with, uh, you know, the typical uh, Platinum Games action gameplay. But then you're summoning like spirits in battle to kind of do elemental attacks and whatnot. And from, you know, I played a little bit of that, like a few hours of that on Apple Arcade when I first got my subscription. And it's like, it's it's okay as like a mobile game, but... It still had like that very gotcha game UI uh, on it, and I felt that very weird. It's like, oh, there's no stamina system, but there are certain like currencies you have that you can definitely see. That like, oh, you were supposed to gotcha for these like 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 the vestiges uh, of demons. what it was originally designed. Yeah, as. yeah. Now it's like kind of all locked off on like these in-game achievements, and like you gain resources back from those achievements, and then you're using these resources to unlock several things. And it just felt very disjointed. It was like, ah, I don't know, this is kind of weird. So Grimoire of Souls is, like, I'm not sure exactly how its gotcha system worked. I remember it did have one. I think it was either for items or weapons or whatnot. But for actual gameplay, you have, like, uh, you know, like heroes and heroines from the past Castlevania games going through uh, Castlevania levels, 2D Castlevania levels. And I'm kind of curious to see how this will shape up in apple arcade i really hope it feels less like mobile game x gotcha game-esque in its presentation because i really don't like 
I don't know. For some reason, how my mind works, like, I really don't like if a game like comes out and cool. There's no gotcha system, but don't leave like the UI and presenta- presentation kind of like the remains of what, what once was because you can definitely see of like, oh, this system was supposed to be this if this was a gotcha game now. Where you can you see know, where that. it was stripped out or whatever. Yeah, clearly. So I I think this use is kind of I'm interested. I, I definitely want to give it a shot and. So here are some here are some details from Gamatsu. It was the first announced oh. for iOS in 2018. It did soft launch in Canada in September 2019 and was de- delisted a year later. And I think it's been silent since then until Konami announced that it is coming to Apple Arcade soon. And that's kind of mm-hmm. it. And you, you can even tell by kind of like the press release for it that uh, play as Alucard and unlock other legendary characters such as Simon Belmont, Maria, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, oh, I, I could already sort of see like where this game initially was conceived as, as like trying to be like a, a who's who amongst Castlevania fans on uh, in terms of being, you know, do you unlock your favorite character or, or whatever? But uh, yeah, yeah Apple, no release date, no release window, just coming to Apple Arcade soon. Apple Arcade is a subscription service, as I know, because I'm going to have to re-up it if I want to get back to Fantasian. Uh <laughs> No, uh, yeah, no. I want to play this. This, is, this sounds cool. Maybe it is kind of interesting to see like these once giant big series like making their way to these other kind of avenues where people can play it. Well, I'll at least download it myself since, well, <laughs> you got subscription. Why not justify yeah. the uh, money I spent on this thing? Yep. Uh, I, I guess remember they said Fantasian Part Two was coming soon. It was like a week later, so maybe like sometime next week this will drop. It's like okay, cool. At this point, might as well expect it. Speaking of new uh, surprising mobile entries in Legacy series, we got an announcement of a new Shining Force game. So Shining Force is back with a new mobile game releasing worldwide next year, which is Shining Force Heroes of Light and Darkness due out in the first half of 2022. So I don't know. I think Chow has got some uh, insight on Shining Force and maybe Josh as well. I don't know. How long has it been since we've seen Shining Force? What do we think of this new mobile entry up on the way? Well, I think the last Shining Force or it's basically been we've been playing spinoffs. We've been playing the Tony Taka design character design spinoffs which Shining is more like Resonance, a, I think. Yeah. Shining Resonance which is more like a action RPG spinoffs because the main series is a tactical RPG which is basically Sega's answer to Fire Emblem back in the day right yeah like there's no permadeaths in in Shining Force from what I remembered but it's more of like RPG driven experience because you know, you can like move and travel to new locations, right? And there'll be like inns and place to stop. Not like Fire Emblem, where it's more like it's like a, a skirmish that you just keep on going, right? So, uh, what does this mean for uh, a new mobile title, Chow? Is it their answer to Fire Emblem Heroes, maybe? Oh, man. Maybe. It does have heroes in the title. Oh, geez. <laughs> this doesn't sound good at all. I'm pretty scared. What? What? Do, okay. In overall, were you were excited for this? What would you want it in? A world I'm excited in. In, in a world where you're excited for the Shining Force mobile game, <laughs> um, what would you want in this? Hmm, that's a very tough question. 
I didn't, I didn't like I, I I've touched a Shiny Force game, but I haven't really. Uh, my memories are so fuzzy of it. The only thing I want from Shiny Force series is like a remake of of free. Like if they put the entire franchise remake it, because what happened with the original series? It was released on the Sega Saturn, mm-hmm. and for the first game, they were worried that the Saturn was going to bomb, and it did. So they have a closure ending. They change the translation somewhere near the end so that has closure in case the sequels don't come out they're probably right yeah so if if they have opportunity to redo the shining four series i would hope they do like a reboot of free and just have the entire series come out here instead of how they you know how they did with free with the closure what happens it's just releasing worldwide uh they're just going to confirm like hey there's still a big shining force audience internationally now it's time and that everything hinge the future of Shining Force hinges upon the success of this mobile game. Hey, who knows? Maybe they can cover this little uh, sequel bait that they left off at the end of free. It has this huge sequel bait that they <laughs> left people hanging for all these years that never went resolved. All right, Shining Force fans, it's your time next year. If you want to see Shining Force back, then get out your phones. And then according to uh, Gamasu's translation of the initial Japanese announcement from gamer.ne.jp, it's uh, it will launch in the first half of 2022 as a free-to-play title with item-based in-app purchases. Oh, yeah. Uh, with the goal, development is in development with the goal of bringing the strategy and fun of tactical RPGs to mobile devices. So it sounds mm. very much like Brave XVS or potentially Fire Emblem Heroes. Uh, I, I read that sort of description and I'm immediately like just uninterested. <laughs> like, I had no issues with Fire Emblem Heroes when it first launched. I thought it was a pretty fun game. It's just that the power creep got a little out of control eventually. So every time when you roll a new unit, it's like the next week, your unit's already been power crept, and it was just impossible to keep up. Hello, mobile games. Woo! Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like I don't have a leg to stand on as I'm still I'm still having my... uh my near reincarnation team auto battle as we record the podcast. Speaking of that game is like, how's your progress in it? I don't want to go too deep, too in deep, but basically I'm just slowly poking away at trying to make sure I kind of keep up with the story and, uh, not, not get behind. They recently announced some of the stuff with the Japanese half anniversary. And I'm, I just, I don't know. I just want to make sure that I stay up to date on it. Kind of out of obligation. The, the most recent developments is in that half anniversary stream, they had like the pro, the, the head of the this near reincarnation game, Yokotaro and um, Saito fishing. And that was the best part of the half anniversary stream was them fishing. Like literally fishing, like out on a river. Yeah, they're literally, yeah, they're literally <laughs> fishing. Yep. Yeah, I'm already a failed gamer. I failed a near fishing game, if anyone is curious. <laughs> you can do it, man. I believe in you. The last bit of uh, non release date related news. For the week is Super Robot Wars 30. So we already talked about this getting a surprise worldwide worldwide release, at least on PC, in October. Um, it will also allow the ability to use custom background music. So this is something yeah. that is near and dear to Josh and Kite, two contributors to the site. Yeah, it's just kind of a cool re- quality of life thing. Go ahead. Yeah, it's just reconfirming that they had that uh, feature back at the uh, three recent releases in V, X, and T. So for people who were kind of I don't know why, but uh, for, for people who were scared, that feature has been removed because now they're selling that the premium uh, sound edition in the West. Like even though they still had that feature, despite having a premium sound edition in Japan previously, um, it's still in there. Just making sure it's confirmed. Um, for the premium sound edition is only really there for like if you really want 
to cut out the work of uh, making sure it sounds um, up, like they have like snippets of the original music, but like perfectly like cut to like fit battle scenes and certain scenes and whatnot. If you don't want to go through that legwork or you want to use other music that's not uh, present in the game. So if you want to do like the Sailor Moon theme instead for or any other music you may have, you can just do that very easily on both PC and uh, PS4. I wonder if how PS5 is going to handle it. Hopefully PS5 is going to handle it easily. But all you have to do is just get a USB uh, thumbstick drive, uh, put in like uh, like have a certain folder name and then put the MP3s in there. And then they're like selectable in the game, and then you can just like kind of like you can assign it up to like which attacks you want to, to play which BGM. So say like this, the original Gundam has like a saber attack and like a like a laser rifle attack. You can like assign different songs for both both that sword attack and that laser rifle attack. So you can go go as minute as that, which is you know cool, very flexible system, easy to use. So and like they have like an in-game volume setting as well of like if it's too low or too high. You can actually set it in game to like adjust the volume, uh, how you could like it as well. So it's cool that it's back. No, no, nothing too big, but good to, good to know. The Switch version of the game, A, it's not releasing worldwide. That'll be for uh, Asia or Southeast Asia. Will not support it, but the PC version, which is worldwide, and the PlayStation version will. Yeah, the, yeah. The only PC version is worldwide, and then right. PlayStation and Switch are just Southeast Asia only for English. Mm-hmm. And now we've got a string of release dates to go over. Most of these are ports or uh, or PC-only releases. So we'll just kind of swing through them and see what we think. So the first one is that Fantasian Part 2 launched on August 13th. It actually ended up launching a bit early, but very surprised because we went like within a two-week span, more like a one-and-a-half-week span, where it's like Part 2 is nearly done to done to out early immediately. So kind of creeped up really quickly out of nowhere. Uh, obviously, we've already had some discussion on that and more of us planning to get into it pretty soon. One game that has been in a few of like the Steam and indie-based like demo festivals is Eastward. This is the uh, Chucklefish published game that has very much drawn comparisons to like that earthbound type urban fantasy sort of vibe. I've seen also uh, some people compare it to like Western Kids cartoons. Um, is coming out on September 16th for a Nintendo Switch and PC. I've heard a lot of good things from people who played the various demos of Eastward. It was also featured in Nintendo's recent Indie World Showcase. That's actually where this news comes from. Seems like a fun little quirky game that, you know, is kind of landing at a good time for these sorts of games that could potentially end up under the radar. Has anyone here gone hands-on with any of the Eastward demos? No, I haven't yet. It looks, it looks really cool, though, to, from the I never check out the demo. I don't like playing demos because usually it gives you pretty different impression from the final product i feel sometimes the steam demo system is kind of weird where it's like you got a week to play it and at that point i'm just kind of like not interested and whenever they put like that timetable on it i'm just like now nah, just wait but i yeah, know it's, that uh, it's also weird like you, you mentioned that and it's also weird because like a lot of those well a good chunk of those demos like don't abide by it too where it says oh you only have limited time to play it but then once that day comes so like uh, a good portion of them still stay up like there's like oh well you know and there's like no uniform like rule that says you have to take it down when it's time like some of them are just like oh, i'll just leave it up and then you guys can just play it at your own time so it's very it's like those steam demo festivals are always such a weird event for me because like it's like you have like 
four days and there's like 500 demos available so if you really want to check out uh, games um well good luck and now sometimes you like you don't know if a demo you're playing is a year away or five years away you don't really know like how far along it is maybe you can mm-hmm. sometimes glean some ideas but you don't know like am i going to be waiting this game for forever or am i playing a demo for a game that i'll be playing the full release of in six months i don't know but yep, so eastward is coming out uh, on september 16th also in September, we have a surprise switch port of Darksiders 3. So a little bit out of nowhere, but also maybe expected because the Switch has seen ports for the um, War Mastered edition of Darksiders 1 and then a port of Darksiders 2. Darksiders 3 coming to the system does make some sense. I originally what reviewed a, this what game. What did they of Darksiders 2 again? I thought I got a I thought I got a port of Darksiders 2 on Switch. No, no, it, no, it did, but like what was that called the the edition called again for Darksiders 2? Uh, what did it actually get it? Oh, Definitive Definitive only replacing the first syllable with Death. Death Definitive yeah. edition. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, Darksiders 3 does not have a silly subtitle. Just Darksiders 3. Uh, so I reviewed this game when it first launched in like 2019 or so. I thought it was all right. It's it's the thing about Darksiders that's kind of weird is that the only thing that really ties them together is like their art style. It's that kind of Western comic book sort of flair to it. A very edgy. If you're like if you're like a, a teenager, you'd probably really be into it or uh, or just like a dumb adult like me. But Darksiders three kind of does something that the first two games didn't do, where it's very much a very it's souls like, sorry, shoot me for using that terminology, but it, it has the sort of thing where enemies will respawn every time you like get to a healing point and upgrade your, your stats. You pick up like these white items off of corpses that end up being like gear items, very much like in the Souls series, uh, where Darksiders 2 was more of a Diablo like with a loot based system, and then Darksiders 1 was more of a Zelda like with like a more, more like key and lock sort of system where you get certain tools that allow you to progress through certain dungeons. So each Darksiders has kind of taken like a different tact of what their inspiration is, which I think in itself is kind of interesting where you don't have like, like whenever you talk about what, what the dark, what could Darksiders for or the future of the series be, it could look like a, it's going to be a visual novel for Darksiders. Gotcha game. Ooh, why not both? There you go. But yeah, Darksiders three, I thought was pretty good. Not great. Now it's on Nintendo Switch, so if you play the first two games and you thought you were interested in the story, uh, Darksiders 3 is, again, another kind of semi-prequel, semi... Like, it doesn't it doesn't push the narrative along. The The, the big cliffhanger at the end of Darksiders 1 is still, still a cliffhanger, and Darksiders 3 just kind of gives you more context from the perspective of another one of the writers. Launching in October is an isometric CRPG called Disciples Liberation. So this is a game that I've kind of had my eyes on uh, just in terms of its marketing over the last couple of years. I don't have a lot of history with the series, but this looks kind of like a pretty high budget sort of uh, take on the genre. Very, very Western oh, high fantasy. Very, hmm? You called it a CRPG, but it looks like it's more just tactical RPG. I mean, it is a computer. Well, well, RPG. well. They kind of have common DNA because now these ta- now these CRPGs are often incorporating like turn-based modes, which are only like a step removed from being tactical in nature. It's coming out in October uh, from Calypso Media, so I haven't really been following it too closely, but it is something that's sort of been on my radar. I don't know like if I'll have the space for it in October to play through it, but I don't know. I think it looks yeah, interesting. I, I was I don't know much about the series, unfortunately. It's a PC-centric series. I do know that the developer is new now, so. People who I have seen 
concerns from people who have played the series that it's a new developer's take on it. So they're not so certain about that. And also, I was also interested in, like, I like tactical RPGs. Maybe I'll try this out. And then they're, they're boasting, like, 80 to 100 hours of gameplay. And I, that to me, that's like, uh, I don't want to just fit in 80 hours of gameplay on a curiosity, you know? Just like, that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes these, like, you have to kind of get invested in terms of like, you can't just jump in and out. Sometimes in these turn-based games, they just end up being kind of long in the tooth where you're not going to be in and out in 20 hours. You got to have to um, really commit to it, which kind of goes into one of the other announcements uh, of a similar-ish game. This is more of a pure CRPG. Sorry for mislabeling Disciples, but Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous, it's coming out on September 2nd. This is That's a release date that we knew about. Um, that one is getting a console release, which is also not a surprise because the original Pathfinder Kingmaker also eventually got a console release. Um, Wrath of the Righteous will release for console in 2022. And that one I know is going to be another one of those long in the tooth games because playing through Pathfinder Kingmaker is about legitimately a 100 hour experience if you want to play start to finish. So I'm oh, expecting Wrath, I'm expecting Wrath of the Righteous to be a, a similarly beefy game. Now, one thing that Wrath of the Righteous is doing out of the gate that Kingmaker didn't do is that it is launching with the turn-based mode. And even though the turn-based mode isn't specifically designed for this, I do feel like that that does kind of go hand-in-hand -hand with a console release because sometimes with the controller input, doing the, the real-time with pause just isn't conducive to that sort of interface if you don't have a mouse and keyboard handy. Uh, so I do think that launching with the turn-based capability is allowing it to go to console a bit quicker. I think it'll be more conducive for that system. But of course, you're not locked into it. You can, you, whether you're playing on PC or next year on console, you can decide to go with the turn-based or the real-time. And one thing that is kind of cool that I've seen people talk about with the um, with the betas is that you can change it on the fly. Where if you're if you're at a if you're doing a, a battle that is more difficult and you really have to like slow it down instead of just pausing between every action, you just kind of do the natural thing and switch over to turn-based, and you can actually like be much more cautious and careful. Where if it's more like trash mobs or you already have like a strategy that you know works really efficiently, you can go to real time and clear through it a bit quicker. So less than a month away for this one, and it's. Uh, one that I've been interested in and looking forward to for pretty much all year. I know, um, I, I should say, I think that Wrath of the Righteous gets rid of the kingdom building mode of the original game, which I know some people are happy about, but it, it now has like a crusade mode, which is sort of like an RTS kind of broader yeah, scale grand strategy sort of thing. I've heard it compared to Heroes of Might and Magic, which I have no experience in. And, and, and sort of like in that degree command armies across the battlefield from a really high perspective. So I'm interested in it, but I kind of just wish that I feel like they just focused on, I just hope it doesn't feel like superfluous because the kingdom mode in Kingmaker, I felt like didn't really add a whole lot. You put a lot of time into it to end up getting like very, very minute benefits where it's like if you're in an area of the world map controlled by your kingdom, your characters get plus one agility or something like that, where it felt really, really kind of minor. So I I don't know if I just rather like what direction do I want them to go in? Do I want to make it feel like that this Heroes of Might and Magic mode really is integral to the experience of the game? Or do I just kind of wish that they kind of cut the chafe out entirely and just focused on the RPG aspects and the combat aspects? So that is one thing that is right now to me, I have not played the betas. Or I have not really seen how this feature is implemented. Does it is it going to feel like a side thing or is it going to really feel like an integral part of the game? I hope obviously it's the later, but the precedent from the King mo Kingdom mode in the first game doesn't give me a ton of confidence, uh, so we'll see. I also just hope that the game launches 
in a much better state just performance-wise. When Kingmaker first launched, it was incredibly buggy. I couldn't even reach the credits because I had basically locked myself out of finishing the game. Uh, unfortunately, I've heard from the betas that things are still really, really kind of hot out of the oven. So hopefully by launch, they've got that mostly ironed out. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's still uh, kind of on edge. We got a surprise port for a game that we talked about earlier in the year, uh, Loop Hero, which was one of the Devolver Digital published titles that we looked at back in March or so. We actually did a, um, a short video on it on our YouTube channel under our casual mode series. Uh, Loop Hero is coming to Switch as well, also revealed in Nintendo's recent Indie World Showcase. So it went on to sell half a million copies on PC. We thought it had a lot of interesting ideas. We might have even mentioned at the time that it might have been a good switch, a good fit for Switch in terms of like the bite size kind of gameplay loop of that game, pun intended. But yeah, so Loop Hero will come to Switch this year. I do wonder how the user interface and the controls will translate for the Switch version. Because when I was playing it, I played with a keyboard and a mouse and I felt like yeah, this is kind of like almost an integral part of the of the game, like controlling it like this, because you have to, um, you're constantly manually having to place like card tiles uh, on the board and like filling out like your your gameplay or your game rather, giving you bonuses and harvesting resources and whatnot. And that's kind of even on 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 mouse, like that was kind of like intensive and like a lot of uh, uh, micromanagement uh, on that and making sure that you have everything in place and ready to go. So I'm really interested to see how they'll handle that on Switch. One final release date, or at least release window, is that we do know that Metal Slug Tactics will release for Switch and PC next year in 2022. This was originally announced as part of the Summer Game Fest from way, way back in June, I think. Feels like a long time ago. Way back in June. Yeah, it feels like forever ago, but this was part of yeah. uh, Jeff Keighley's produced thing that was like the E3 sub-replacement sort of thing. Uh, we, at the time, we weren't quite sure whether this was a tactical game or an RPG or a combination of both. Uh, we did get a new trailer for it, a new set of descriptions, and obviously the announcement of the release window next year as part of, again, the Nintendo Indie World Showcase. Uh, and it turns out it will have some RPG sort of elements along with some roguelike elements. So kind of an interesting take on the uh, something that Metal Slug never was. It's kind of yeah. an interesting. It, it, we, we at the time, we, we kind of talked about it. I don't think we covered it on the site, but I think we talked about it either on the cast or just in chat. How it was seemed really faithful to the original series artistically, even though it was taking a different tact gameplay wise. So now we have a little bit more of a of an idea of how it will play. It's a roguelike tactical RPG, aptly named Metal Slug Tactics, PC and Switch next year. Oh, so, weird. It, it just yeah. is so weird. Yeah, Combination I'm, of a bunch of weird buzzwords there, but I don't know. I'm I think excited. it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's it's an interesting yeah. take. It's not a gotcha game, as far as I know, so it doesn't have that attached mm -hmm. to it yet. We don't know yet. No, nothing can be said for sure until we get our hands on it. <laughs> It, do, it does seem kind of weird that the way they describe this is that it takes what makes Metal Slug so special and unique and brings it to the tactical genre. It's like, wait, how can you? That's like having your cake and eating it too, like where it's faithful to the original games, but we're trying something different. I don't, can't you just say you're trying something different? I don't know. People, people don't like uh, different things, so they have to put those words in, like, oh, okay, you said faithful, so you're good. <laughs> Yeah, so I know some people immediately saw this news post and were like, roguelike, I'm immediately not interested. But I don't know, I've seen a few uh, takes on that. So obviously we've had like um, 
Hades and uh, Returnal kind of mess with the idea and kind of bring that sort of idea into more popular, more in vogue. So I don't know. I, I'm okay with other series kind of testing their toes in the water, seeing if it's a good fit for their their ideas and their conceptions, and maybe maybe slapping Metal Slug on it will work out well. Will work out fine. So that's the we'll prime see. time to re-release Breath of Breath of Fire Dragon Quarter, dude. That people like Rolex again. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> see. Yep, that'll come out uh, next year at some point. And that kind of covers us for uh, the news for the week. Again, kind of a slow period of the year, but we did have a few surprise announcements for August and September release dates, including Fantasian, which is out now if you have an Apple device. If you don't, you just got to be a be a mark like one of us and go get one just to play Fantasian <laughs> or wait. For Not it. Oregon Trail. Oh, oh man, yes, Oregon Trail is cool. also available on Apple Arcade, as is the Okami-like uh, Platinum Games game, whose title has already escaped me. World of Demons. Thank you, World of Demons. And uh, an upcoming Castlevania game uh, at some point that is no longer a gacha game, but might still feel like one. We'll see. As always, thank you for listening. You can uh, go up onto our site at rpgsite.net to read all the features that we talked about in terms of the Monster Hunter movie, Monster Hunter movie impressions, the Tales of Arise hands-on impressions, our interview there, as well as all the news that we talked about today. We're also on all the usual haunts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under RPG site. You'll probably find us pretty easily. We do have a Discord channel, discord.gg slash RPG site. So if you want to talk about any of these games or other games that were released recently, like uh, Monster Hunter Rise, Stories 2, Neo, The World Ends With You, near titles, whether it's Replicant or Reincarnation, feel free to hop on and join the discussion there. And we uh, host this podcast seemingly every week. So we will be back next week with probably more thoughts on Fantasian and maybe a few surprises otherwise that we can't predict. So until then, Take care, stay safe. We'll talk to you next time. Fighting Force stands, rise up.